and I think about this all the time, if I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, episode 14, Whose Lie Is It Anyway? Witness Recap Trivia Game, the mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Welcome to Whose Lie Is It Anyway? Today, we are going to review the witnesses, lawyers, cops, and major players we have discussed so far to not only give you a review of the players in the case, but to also give ourselves a chance to test our own memories. The prison phone is a bit noisy, but that didn't stop us from having fun. Coming to you live from the Stateville Correctional Center. Today's contestants are Leslie... Tammy, and myself, Bruce, the Alex Trebek of our game. Let's go over the rules of the game. When your name is called, I will give you a name of a person in the case who has been previously discussed. You will then have 30 seconds to tell who that person is and how they fit into the case. Is everybody ready? Yes. Yep. Yes. Jamie, who is Bill Little? Bill Little was a victim in the case. He's an 18-year-old kid that was working at a, a little bitty uh, gas station on Easter Sunday, um, and he was uh, murdered for less than 100 bucks. The case has still been unsolved. Tam, who is Gerardo Gutierrez? Gerardo Gutierrez was a witness who was at the gas station um, 10 minutes before the crime, he saw someone in the gas station that looked suspicious. He described him. They put his composite out. He never identified Jamie. Um, and he's, he's still never identified Jamie as the person who was there. And we want to talk to him. Just under the buzzer. Well, I think, Tammy, you forgot. He's the one who said the scar on the chin. That's so important. That's his tagline. Scar on the chin. Okay. Earring. You need to remember that. You guys are going to have to fix this up later on. No, that means that she doesn't get a full point. That's all. I guess she gets one of these. <laughs> oh, Fuck you all. Leslie, who is Danny Martinez? Danny Martinez lived next door to the Clark station, and on the night of the crime, he said that he was going over there to buy sodas and snacks for his kids and his wife to watch a movie, and while he was there, um, he was filling up his tire, and he was being watched at the same time as Officer Pilo, and he came up with this whole story that he went in the gas station to get something, and then he almost bumped into somebody but turned around, and the suspect had a ball cap on, and uh, he could never identify who it was anybody ever that's it oh and he never he never identified him he had he saw multiple composites never identified him never identified him in the 
in-person lineup within three months of the crime. And he didn't identify him till 10 years later in a private meeting at the state's attorney's office. I think you get a half a point, Leslie. Well, I think I can't get a full point because that was too long. I got to tell the whole story. I, I didn't tell the 85% thing, then the 100% thing. I missed a lot. So that's why I'm going to lose. He picked out two pictures on the night of the crime and said it was between those two. Neither one of them was me. All right. Well, he's the worst fucking liar out of everybody. So that was, I missed that point too. Ooh. Jamie. Who is Carlos Luna? Carlos Luna was a 14-year-old kid who was uh, living across the street. He was looking out his window. He claimed to have seen someone coming out of the gas station. He completely contradicted uh, Danny Martinez. Danny said the guy backed out with his hands in his pockets. Uh, Carlos said the guy came out face forward, uh, pushing the door with his left hand. He has since given us a an affidavit clarifying some of what he said and they withheld evidence on it. It would have contradicted his trial testimony. Ooh, good job. Leslie, who is Juan Luna? Juan Luna is Carlos Luna's cousin, I believe, and he was a little bit younger than him. They were both looking out the window of the bedroom that night and claimed to see the suspect leaving with a trench coat. And uh, Juan never testified or gave written statements or anything. It was just Carlos. Uh, I think Juan went to the lineup and couldn't select anybody. And Carlos was the one who said that maybe he saw somebody that looked like him, but not the guy. And that was it. So we would really like to hear from Juan Luna and hear what he had to say and why he has like a... Mm. Yes. The only thing I would point out is in the reports that we have since received about you know, Juan and Carlos, we know now uh, that they were both talked to uh, a week or so later individually, and they've still been withholding those reports from us all these years. So he must have said something they didn't like. But you did real good. Oh, thank you. Full point awarded. Tam, who is Jeff Pilo? Jeff Pilo was the first officer on the scene. He was watching Danny Martinez and later in 1999 gave an interview that explained exactly how uh, Martinez was approaching the store and turned around and did his little back and forthy thing. And he has since given us an affidavit saying that he never talked to anybody in the store and had, has read Martinez's testimony and said that it was not correct. And he... You were pretty slow on that one. Come on, Tam. Well, I don't know. I didn't practice. I didn't make the list, Leslie. All right. Jeff Pilo was so important because when he went on stand, they tried to say that he was playing with his microphone so that the suspect probably ran out of the store while he was looking down to call in Danny Martinez. And he just completely missed him. And um, that's how they got away with that at trial. Pretty yeah. good. And he has since adamantly just confirmed that, you know, at the very moment that Danny Martinez claims he was face-to-face with someone in the parking lot that night, you know, Jeff was focused in on him, and, you know, it was impossible, you know, for for Danny to have been face-to-face with someone, and the cops knew that, the state knew that the whole time, they still put him up there anyway. 
And the important thing about that is that we very recently um, have gotten him to say the difference between what he said at trial, which was, I didn't see anybody come out of the the store to what is true, which is nobody was at the store. So, uh, you know, the state's attorney kind of tried to use a play on words that he didn't see anybody with his own eyes. But no, there was nobody in front of him is what he was trying to say. But that's not what made it in the transcript. I really think that's the most important part of everything that he's ever said was that he just, that he was focused in on him and there wasn't anybody there. He didn't miss anybody. There wasn't anybody there. That instance of that whole scenario of Williams being across the street and Pilo being across the street and Martina said he ran into somebody, 10 years ago, that's what convinced me of Jamie's innocence because it it's just impossible for that scenario yeah. to have been that way. And that was the first thing. Now we've gotten a lot more evidence, but at that time from what we had, that's what convinced me of his innocence. Well, I can't even think of another case where you have two police officers and a witness and nobody believes them. I can't um, think of anything else like that. I agree. Leslie, who is Paul Williams? Paul Williams arrived on the scene at the same time as Jeff Pilo as a responding officer and he took charge of the scene but he waited a little bit down the block and watched from his squad car and he watched Pilo looking at Danny Martinez and calling in the plates and as soon as Pilo crossed the street to go into the store Paul Williams got out of his car walked on foot and went inside and found the body and called for first responders he um testified at the medical examiner that you know he got there first okay (laughs) jamie why don't you go and say the rest no i I think you pretty much you pretty much got it i mean he he just uh he said at the medical examiner's inquest that they arrived at the same time and he he put himself in a position where he could watch the door uh, of the gas station make sure that nobody came and, and left and when you you, you put it all together uh, with what Danny said and what Jeff said and what William saw. The whole scenario is just completely impossible. And, and I say it again, you know, this is the state's evidence. They knew this, uh, and they just they just disregarded it and, and, and used them anyways. The grossest. Now, that. did he ever even testify at your trial? Yeah, he testified, but you know, Frank Pitzel was dealing. Uh, blackjack in his head uh, while he was up there on the stand. So, Jamie, who is Susan Claycomb? Susan Claycomb was my co-defendant, um, my sister-in-law. She was charged right along with me. She was found not guilty. She, they gave her every chance in the world. They offered her every deal she could possibly get to to be to be free. All she had to do was testify against me, and she just she refused to do it. The jury found her not guilty. She had a great jury and a great lawyer. He killed her. Perfect. You got in just under the buzzer. Tam, who is Frank Pitzel? Frank Pitzel was Jamie's trial attorney. He was appointed because while while Jamie was um, had the death penalty was on the table. He after the trial he was uh, convicted of. Um, bilking an elderly woman of a hundred her whole life savings and she died penniless he went to prison for that he lost his law license he did a really shit job for Jamie 
during the trial and we think he was probably appointed because he had so many problems gambling and adult alcoholism and everything <laughs> there's a lot to say about that asshole you motherfucker leslie who is steve skelton steve skelton was susan's uh defense attorney he was a private defense attorney and he did a very good job and when jamie went to trial his attorneys tried to mimic everything that he did very poorly um steve skelton got susan um off the hook very well he would make a bunch of motions he did a lot of research he got uh witnesses to not be allowed to testify he got testimony stricken and he was very calm and in control during the trial unlike what we saw in jamie's trial well done yeah jamie who is charles crow charles crow charles crow was the lead detective on the case um from the very beginning uh, i think charlie believed that i was innocent i think that they waited until he retired to charge me as soon as he retired, Dan Katz and Rick Marcus took over the case, and, you know, within less than a year, they had me in jail. So, I think for many years, Charlie was the only thing that was keeping me from getting getting a, a charge. I think he knew I was innocent. I gave you eight seconds because I thought that was important. <laughs> <laughs> Tam, who is Russell Thomas? Russell Thomas was... Oh my God, he was the one who did the composite sketches. And he's the one that had the kids in, that um, uh, the Luna, Luna, Luna boys in, and said that they couldn't give enough, uh, enough information to even do a composite. So he didn't think, you know, that that, and that came out in Susan's trial, but he, what, he wasn't in Jamie's trial. Oh my God, do I have this nope, right? You're wrong, pass to Leslie, Leslie steals. Russell Thomas was the detective that arrested Jamie at his aunt's house or at his uh, sister's house, and then, uh, and then interviewed him about a robbery, and then later at the grand jury told the grand jury that he had talked to Jamie about a robbery, and Jamie was really upset and nervous about it. But then he went to trial, and he replaced the word robbery with murder. So then he testified against Jamie that Jamie had tried to confess to him about the murder and was very upset about it. And um, that was just a common thread to everything Jamie ever said about knowing about a robbery was murder now. Son of a bitch. I, I just listened to that episode last night. Leslie with the steal. Yeah. I should get a bonus point. No, I was I didn't review anything. I was just trying to help Leslie out, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> who was the person who did the composites? That was Tom Sanders. Tom Sanders, that's why I got Russell Thomas. Okay. <laughs> I had to fix it. I had to. I had to know who it was. Tom Sanders. We didn't put him in here, but yeah, Tom Sanders was the one who did the composites. Okay. Yeah, I just Tom wanted to Sanders get that straight. The one who did the composite and uh, and said that he was unable to get any details from Carlos and Juan Luna in order to put the composite. 
problem of drawing together. I mean, you have to be able to, and, and Steve Skelton did a masterful job when he cross-examined him at Susan's trial. He got him to admit, you know, in order to do a composite drawing, you have to be able to describe the person's eyes, their nose, their mouth, you know, their chin, their eyebrows, their face. So, I mean, if you can't describe the person's face, I mean, you know, and that that's perfectly in line with the memo uh, that we got through the Freedom of Information request that we, we know that they withheld on Juan and Carlos Luna because they were unable to even see the person's face from 220 feet away at night. And I, I have to point out, the only question the jury asked was they wanted someone to demonstrate 220 feet more so they could determine whether or not you could make an identification from that distance. So I, I think it's pretty clear why they withheld that memo. They knew that memo was, was dynamite, and they withheld it. All right, Leslie, you're up. Who is Dan Katz? Dan Katz, the uh, witness whisperer, as Jamie likes to say. He was, uh, along with Rick Barkas, one of the cold case detectives, and he really wanted a a nice career boost. So he went and interviewed all of these uh, informants back in jail, and um, he got them to change their stories. He would uh, lead them. He would give them information before the tape started. He would stop the tape and rewind it to get more stuff. And then he testified at trial and wasn't even asked about any of these interviews that he did. Another one, well done. Just under the buzzer, 29 seconds. I would add one thing, and that is that he uh, was the reason for Eric Drew's murder case being reversed because he paid him under he paid him under the table some money and uh, helped him out with some, some charges. So he had a history of doing this. Tam, who is Rick Barkas? Rick Barkas and Dan Katz kind of go hand in hand. They were the two detectives that took over the case in 1998. And uh, both shady as fuck. And they're the ones that solely focused on Jamie Snow after that time. Although they said all the whole time that they were, you know, going over the whole case and interviewing everyone, all the suspects. They only interviewed people related to Jamie Snow. This next one is for Jamie. Jamie, who are Ed Palumbo and Shannon Schmidt-Wallace? Ed Palumbo, uh, Ed Palumbo was the first person to, I think, mention my name in the case. Everything he testified to, uh, he never said um, in the beginning. He had confessed to an armed robbery, and when he seen how much trouble he was in, he was trying to get himself out. He just gave us an affidavit. Shannon Schmidt was his girlfriend at the time, and um, she was just put on the stand to try to cooperate what he was saying. Her story changed back and forth and back and forth the whole time. I don't know if I covered that very well. Well, Shannon Shannon had always said that she was never um, in the car with him all the way up through tapes, a tape that we have in 1999, I believe. They, she was asked directly, were you in the car? with Ed Palumbo. However, she went on to testify that she was in the car with Palumbo and her significance is to corroborate Ed, Ed, Ed Palumbo's story that he passed them on Olive Street. Street. Yeah. And Jamie confessed I mean, to the crime. Where, that's where his whole story started. 
So right. they needed her to cooperate him, uh, and she eventually did that. But he has basically recanted and said it never happened in the first place. So, Tam, who are Stephen Scheel and Molly Esh Eads? Stephen Scheel testified that he was at a at a party and he saw Jamie and hadn't seen him in years and he looked dirty and he was wearing dirty clothes and his hair wasn't washed and he confessed to the murder even though he hadn't seen him in years. Molly Esh, that party was at her house, but there's a lot of discrepancies um, between that. In fact, there was in 1991, there was a tip from Stephen Schill that said um, that somebody had told him that Jamie committed the crime, but he went on to testify that Jamie directly told him about the crime and Molly was there to corroborate that. <laughs> I'd just like to add that he was the one who gave the big crybaby affidavit that he took back later and wouldn't sign it. Leslie, who is Randy Howard? He was uh, a kid that just said he knew Jamie from the neighborhood and surprised he wanted to come home for some kind of holiday and Jamie went and picked him up at the bus station and while they were in the car just confessed to him about it. Um, and he was a paid informant and when he went to, he did get money from uh, the detectives for something and then when he went to trial he was very hostile and he kept going back and forth saying that if he knew he was okay if he knew he was going to be there he wouldn't have said the things he said Jamie who is Bill Moffat? Bill Moffat was a guy that was my cellmate for one night I'd never met him before in my life um, he testified that you know we were talking about the case um, we found out since that he told someone he got a time cut to testify. He's like, you know, Ed Hammond or Ed, Ed, Ed Palumbo, everything he testified to, he didn't tell the cops the first time he talked to him. And, um, yeah, he's just, uh, he's full of shit. He is full of shit. Tam, who is Ed Hammond? Ed Hammond testified that Jamie, he saw Jamie at the B of I when they were together in, I can't remember the prison name, but when they were together in prison and that uh, they went together, they went and they, even though they were in different cell houses, they were able to see each other in the yard and he continued to testify. I mean, he continued to, uh, Jamie continued to tell him the story about how he killed Bill Little, but Ed Hammond has since completely recanted his testimony and he got a federal deal that was coordinated between an ex-prosecutor from McLean County and Tina Griffin that was the then current first assistant state's attorney. Very good. That was very good. Leslie, who are Bruce Rowland and Danielle Rowland? Uh, Bruce Rowland is the drunk who had uh, some DUIs and needed some help from the police and his wife didn't want him to go back to jail, Danielle, so she very conveniently uh, called up a bunch of gal pals from the trailer park and said she could help them out if they would talk to her about Jamie's case and Bruce Rowland ended up getting uh, a lot less time in punishment for his third DUI than he ever did his first because he went to trial and he said 
I don't know what he said, actually. But he said, oh, he said that Jamie confessed to him through a cell, uh, his cell door while he was mopping the floor. While they were, you know, shared a, uh, it's some time in the same prison. I gave you 13 extra seconds. Oh, thank you. So, but there was so two Bruce people. Was, so Bruce was a trustee at that prison, and Jamie happened to be going there um, on a court writ, which is weird because Bruce was named a trustee at the same time. Uh, on, uh, within a day of Jamie getting that court writ to that prison, so Bruce was given access to Jamie, and Bruce told me personally that he never even talked to Jamie, and he doesn't even remember Jamie being in that prison. He failed the polygraph. Yeah. Okay, Jamie, the last one goes to you. You have a little extra time here because there's three names. Karen Strong, Kevin Strong, and Mark Stretch McCown. Who are they? Uh, I don't know who Kevin Strong is. He's married to Karen Strong, so I've never met him, so I, I can't say. Um, Karen was the girlfriend of Mark McCown, who... She testified that I came to her house on the on the night of the crime, uh, between the hours of ten and midnight, uh, and that I was wearing a ball cap, and that she saw the front of the car. We supposedly were driving. Uh, that problem with that is that you know months earlier when she was talking to the detectives, she completely contradicted that. You know that we were walking and and. Uh, you know, that Mark had told her I committed this crime or whatever. And Mark has since, uh, you know, given us an affidavit that, you know, he he never told her that. Um, it was his understanding that she had gotten into some trouble and she was trying to work her way out of it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, just a typical uh, Westside Bloomington uh, witness. She... She was making it up as she went along, and, and I think we put enough stuff out with the podcast to show that, you know, she just she just made it up as she went along. I don't know why. We still hope to talk to her someday. So, Mark, also, I wanted to add that Mark also testified at Jamie's trial. He, he did it in his affidavit. He, he detailed the, you know, the pressure that they were putting on him to try to get him to cooperate Karen's story. You know, they went to the prison he was in, put him in stake, directed charging with, you know, this or that or whatever. So, I mean, there was a common thread going on with these witnesses that they were, you know, offering deals and, you know, making threats. And, you know, like we've said from the beginning, you know, there's almost $10,000 worth of reward money missing. Who got it? Where'd it go? I also want to add about Kevin Strong that during that time, he was getting major domestic, domestic incident charges and you know uh, serious there were two felony charges that were completely dismissed there was a, a a bunch of charges that were dismissed the same day that Karen came back on July 11th 2000 was it Leslie yes it was July 11th 2000 and that's when she had uh, her longest interview with the most details with the most details, and that's where she substantially changed her story. Exactly. That's when she realized it was the night of the crime. The charges were dropped the same day that she did that interview. So he was in jail. Well, there's a lot of coincidences going on in McLean County, isn't there? No such thing. 
And we're talking about three hours. So she gave her interview at 1040 in the morning and her husband got uh, a bunch of charges dismissed at 130 in the afternoon. So you decide. What the fuck? <laughs> I know what it looks like to me, but I mean, you know, uh, I, I guess they just, there's just a lot of coincidences going on in this case. I mean, you know, all these people, a lot of them don't know each other and they're not connected to each other, but they're given the same story about the pressure and the threats and the, you know, uh, the intimidation uh, that, that, that the detectives were putting on them. And that's, that was the difference between Charlie Crow and, and, and Rick Marcus and, and, and Dan Cass. Charlie was actually trying to solve the case. Uh, Rick Marcus and Dan Cass was just trying to close it. Big difference, in my opinion. Good job. Good yeah. job. Yeah, he wins. I already turned off the buzzer, so nobody's getting a buzzer anymore. Yeah, but who won? <laughs> I said you, you three have to decide that. Uh, well, we all won because we all got through it. We did a really good job. Listen, I, I think you know, I think uh, even if I did win on points, I, I think I'm the, I think I'm the biggest winner uh, in all of this because uh, you know I have all of you guys. You know, I've got you, Tammy, and Bruce, Leslie. You know, I've got you guys doing all this stuff for me. I have. You know, Tara Thompson and, and, and John Lovey and, 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 uh, you know, John Hanlon, you know, from the Exoneration Project working for me. So at the end of the day, you know, even though I'm sitting in here, uh, in this hot box right now, I still feel like I'm the biggest, I'm the biggest winner because of all of you. You know, and, and also I've got all these awesome people that have come into my life from the Truth and Justice podcast. And the truth is, you know, without the three of you, no one would know the truth about any of these people. No one would know anything about Karen. No one would know anything about Bruce Bowen or Danny Martinez or, you know, any of these people. So I'm the biggest winner here. And I, I need to get out of here and go on that TV show, The Biggest Loser, because I really need to lose some weight. So <laughs> I need to be the biggest winner. I need to be the biggest loser. So I just really need you guys to understand and, and know that I don't take any of this for granted and I appreciate everything that you guys do and I appreciate every person out there who listens in and cares enough to want to know the truth about what's going on and, and, and what has happened and you know and I, I say it now and I, I'll continue to say it, you know these witnesses that we're talking about and what we're going to continue talking about this is the evidence that got me convicted and this is what the McLean County State's attorneys, one after another, continue to hang their their denial of any sort of forensic testing on. And I just think it's ridiculous, you know, and you know, especially in the climate that we have right now in, in our country where everybody wants change. Change has got to come in many different forms. And the biggest change has got to come from the justice system. George Floyd was choked out and the black folks all over the country are being murdered because cops and prosecutors and judges are all working hand in hand with each other. Prosecutors need the cops to get their convictions. Judges need prosecutors to be able to get their convictions so they can hand their tough on crime sentences down. You know, they, every single criminal case that is 
prosecuted, the prosecutor needs the cops. You know, a, a cop that fails to show up or like Jeff Bilo forgets his script can screw, can screw a case over. So it's, the change has got to start from the top down. I am really, I'm, I'm grateful for everyone that's pushing for the, for the change in, in, in my case. You know, I, I, I can only imagine what the jury was thinking when they were getting, you know, bombarded with all of these witnesses and all of these stories and, and how confusing and overwhelming and, and it, it must have been. I mean, the one person that we didn't talk about was Pat Riley and, and, and he was my first attorney after they disqualified Amy Davis. And, you know, I've said it before, I went to my cell and cried myself to sleep the night I met him. Uh, it, I, I just knew I was in trouble and the jury was just left to just, to try to figure it out, you know, and, and, and my attorneys were not, you know, doing the job that they were hired for to help them figure it out, you know, and, 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 and we're halfway through this, you know, and, and uh, I've never held it against my jury. I, I, I have never, not one time thought that, I mean, I knew they, they got it wrong, but it, it wasn't their fault that they got it wrong. They were getting, a, a, a shitty rendition of the evidence by my attorneys and the state withheld so much evidence from them that it was an impossibility for them to get it right under those circumstances. So hopefully when this is over and, and, and we finish everyone, you know, the picture will be clear. You know, Tina Griffin said something in her opening statement. She said, the truth never changes. And man, that is a statement that that Pat Riley and Frank Pitzel should have should have just oh my God they should have had a big huge poster board that that, that that said the truth never changes when they did their closing arguments and then and then exposed to the jury every single witness story changed I mean every single one of them I can't think of one whose story stayed the same everybody's Except for the people who never changed their stories were you, Susan, and Mark, and you weren't believed. Hmm. Well, I stand corrected. I, I, there were three people who didn't change their stories, and that was uh, me, Susan, and Mark. And uh, you know that would have been a bit of, that that would have been powerful for the jury had they had an opportunity to uh, you know have someone actually do their job. But you know Frank, Frank was. Uh, you know, struggling with his own addiction demons and his mental health problems. And, and Pat Riley had a stroke a month before they appointed him as my attorney. So he probably uh, shouldn't have been trying a uh, DUI case. If you don't believe that I'm innocent, that's fine. I am. But I didn't get a fair trial. You know, I, 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 I deserve a fair trial. Everyone deserves a fair trial in this country with attorneys who are at least competent and effective to do their job. If you can't support my, my fight for freedom because you believe I'm innocent, then at least support my, my fight for a new trial because I didn't get a, a fair trial. I mean, we all, everybody deserves a fair trial if you're uh, arrested and charged with something. Let me get back off my soapbox. <laughs> That's funny, Jamie. That's the first thing I wrote you when I wrote you. I don't know if you're innocent or not, but I don't think you got a fair trial. Oh, <laughs> I swear to God, I swear to God, I thought you were going to say 
That's funny. Well, I didn't get a fair trial. You know, and Susan got a fair trial, but really she didn't get a fair trial because I really believe they they knew that she didn't know anything about the case. I think when it finally came down to it and she was sitting there and, and, and they were picking a jury and they had put every ounce of pressure that the McLean County State Attorney's Office could put on her and she didn't cave. I think they were, those, those people are, are well enough informed and they've been doing that between Katz, Marcus, Griffin, uh, and Reiner, and Judge Bernardi. They probably had over a hundred and some years of experience in law enforcement. They knew. Well, the other thing is Susan was pregnant and I can't think of a time in a woman's life where she's more vulnerable, where law enforcement says they're going to, you're going to give birth in a jail and we're going to take your newborn baby away. And that's enough to make any woman say anything to stay with their baby. So, you know, she didn't do that. Susan was a hero and Susan did stand up and people tend to focus on that. But on the other side, they knew that she didn't have anything to do with this. And they did this to her and her family in an attempt to get at you. And they were willing to go down, all the way down the wire, put her on trial for this murder, knowing that she didn't do it. Imagine the pressure they would have been able to apply upon her had they been able to get a conviction. They were still been trying to cut her free and she had testified. Then they went to her and said, okay, so now she got a conviction. Now, now, you know, you'll testify against it. We'll give you X amount of time. You know, it was a, it was horrible. What they did to her was, uh, I mean, what they've done to me and my family was, was, it was horrible, you know, but what they did to Susan, I mean, and come on, Bruce, Bruce Rowland didn't want to go to prison for some DUIs. Are you serious? Susan has never been in jail in her life. She's never been in trouble. And they, they, they brought every ounce of pressure that the Wilmington Police Department, the Monterey County, you know, State Attorney's Office had in their arsenal down upon her. And, uh, you know, I really credit her mom because her, Susan told me later on that her mom told her, if it's not true, don't do it. You don't want to have no part of helping them put an innocent man in prison, so don't lie. And listen, Susan's mom didn't really like me. (laughs) So for her to say that, I think it says a lot about her mom and and just the fact that Susan had the the guts to just stick to the, you know, stick to the truth, man. I mean, she's she's a hero in in my book and, and what I think people really forget about is she never recovered from it. It destroyed her life. It destroyed her family. Her and her husband were living in Tennessee when they arrested her. Carl had a little plumbing business down there. They had their own home. They were doing better than they'd ever done. And they destroyed her life. She, uh, she never got over it. You know, that's what people don't don't realize. I mean, lies, lies destroy lives. We're all witness to it. In episode 14, we played a trivia game to show you just how hard it must have been for Jamie's jury to recall just the basic details of stories told from the stand. 
While playing, we only included the witnesses we have already discussed in previous episodes. Keep in mind that we are currently only about midway through the witness list, and we still couldn't get it all right, even after hours of research and presentation. Could you convict someone of murder based off your memory? We were laughing, but it's not funny. Victim Bill Little was murdered, and Jamie's life was stolen. Jamie has said repeatedly that if he doesn't laugh, he will die of sadness. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. We have a long way to go. We will continue to expose lies as we press on to work our way through the witness list and examine why they might have done it and how they got away with it. That's next time on Snow Files.